let's say, Eroica? Did he say, now this is what I'm trying to do, or this is what I am doing? Um, there's no program to it whatsoever. Uh, the only thing you can understand is from some of the... Um, from the manuscript, where it one part is uh, written at the bottom, geschrieben auf, Napole- uh, auf, auf Bonaparte, written on Bonaparte. But you know, composers in that day didn't. Uh, I mean, this is before the. Uh, this is sort of at the beginning of Romanticism. You have some composers like Berlioz who write what are called programmatic symphonies that have all sorts of meanings, and he writes a program to explain what the first movement's doing, the second movement, like in his uh, uh, the Fantastic Symphony. But for Beethoven, uh, no. There's, there are no works where he writes a program per se. But you can see in the way in some of the sketches in that, for instance, that there is a program or something that he's thinking about. The Ninth Symphony, for instance. I hope everyone will go to hear the Ninth Symphony when it's performed in. Uh, I've forgotten when it, it's in November. I think 22nd. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, this should be a wonderful event. And uh, and by the way, I, I just want to say that live music is so much different from CDs. CDs, you can have beautiful performances and you can listen to them, but the live music, that's an experience. Anyways, in, when he's writing the symphony, in, his, in the last movement, uh, he had a problem when he was writing the symphony. It's the first time that a chorus is actually introduced into a symphony. This is revolutionary for, for, uh, for the, uh, of that day, and it was taken up by later composers like Mendelssohn and, of course, uh, Mahler, uh, above all. Um, and he had a hard time. He wasn't sure what the finale would be. And they have kept his, you know, their sketchbooks. Like uh, other, unlike other composers, he kept all of his sketchbooks. And I'll talk a little bit about that too, because that had an effect on the uh, on the symphony. And in his sketchbooks for the finale, he had to set up the entrance of the chorus, which is based on Schiller's Ode to Joy, of course. And he does this by having what first what uh, Wagner called the terror fanfare, which you have a really dissonant chord and this wild uh, outburst from the orchestra. And then the double basses and cellos have what's called recitative, like it's uh, like it's uh, like they're talking or, or, or uh, like they're words. And under the recitative, he has written out words that you don't get in the score now that express what they have to, what they want to say. And what he does with this recitative is it introduces the previous melodies from the previous movements as if the orchestra is looking or music is looking for something that will be suitable for the ending, just like he was looking for it when, when he was composing it. And so first you hear, um, you hear the, uh, uh, the cellos and basses uh, perf- uh, like, like, they're, like they're speaking. And then comes the, the theme of the first movement. And then they reject it. You can hear it as no, and uh, uh, so, something. Uh, we, uh, I've forgotten the exact words, but this is this is too melancholy. And then then comes the the second uh, uh, movement, and then they reject it for another reason. And he's written the actual reasons underneath it. That's the closest thing to a program that you get in his uh, in his writings. But in his later style, above all, some of his music comes so close to wanting to be like words, to be pregnant with this this extreme desire to say something, to just stop them, stop it and just directly confront the audience with, with an idea. Uh, one of the string quartets, there's a movement called Beklempt. There's a movement that at one point says it's Beklempt, as if you're so choked up you can hardly say something. In the A-flat major piano sonata, the uh, Opus 110, 
there are moments that almost des- almost demand like a programmatic interpretation. Uh, it's this incredibly beautiful sonata that you go right through, and the beginning is like like the moment after uh, the mo- moment after an acceptance of something terrible has happened. You get this this opening transcendental sort of very beautiful melody, but it's it's there's something behind it as if as if it's as if it's after a death or something like that that has severe, really uh, uh, affected you. And, and the opening figure then becomes something later on in the piece that seems to have a meaning. Uh, you then go through this really angry scherzo. That's this, and then out of this comes what he calls an aria dolente. It's like a recitative in an aria, as if you were a singer again. And the aria is just, it's, he calls it a klagenderlieder, a, a song of lamentation. And it it really goes to the absolute depths of despair and then stops on this chord and then you have the beginning of a fugue and that's such a reassuring fugue and then you realize that that's the same basic op- idea as the very opening of the first movement then it comes back to the to the uh, to this aria dolente that's even more broken up and more uh, desperate and the the melody is now broken up with rests as if the singer is actually uh, Sobbing at the time that they're singing it, then it comes to this moment where it's it's just held up on this dominant chord, this this off beat, and it, it, you're, like your heart is breaking at that moment. And then the fugue comes back in in inversion, and then brings you to this this moment where everything seems to be falling apart. And then comes to the regular form of the fugue, and then it just uh, it just goes to this brilliant finale that ends it off. These things are so dramatic, they're so powerful. It's like there is a story being told. It's like the acts of a drama. And when you perform it, it really hits you. It, it, it's, uh, you're, you're living an experience that's just amazing at, at that time. And it's almost as if there is a story being told. But he didn't put it into a- absolute words. And there the performer has to be the, the storyteller, basically. Yeah. November 22nd at 8 p.m., yeah, for the symphony, yeah. Hi, thanks a lot for, for this. Um, Ian McKenna is my name. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the word education came to my mind as, as you were talking, you know, the, the drawing out, drawing the out, pulling yeah, out of go, things. Yeah. And um, I witnessed that with my uh, granddaughter. She was only one, and uh, I decided to uh, play, uh, or uh, not me play, but uh, on the record, uh, Bruch's... Uh, Violin concerto mm-hmm. in C, you know, which is beautiful in the the uh, the second movement, and uh, the impact on her was that uh, the lip came up, and there was someone there was sad there was sadness there that had been uh-huh. drawn out and pulled out, and I wondered as to how much uh, that um, is really part of what music uh, is about is drawing out. Emotions, and it can be many. It can be anger and uh, fear and, and and sadness and so on. And it seems that is a, a much better way of doing it than, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, giving the the student the the belt or the strap or something <laughs> as we call it, you know. But uh, but I just wondered to that extent how, how important that might be. Uh, and I know Bruch isn't uh, quite up there with uh, Beethoven, although they're both Germans and. Uh, uh, and, and while I'm here, uh, you might find it funny only because I have a, a friend who's Austrian, and uh, the Austrians have the best PR system in the world uh, because uh, they had everyone believing that uh, 
uh, Hitler was German and that uh, Beethoven <laughs> was Austrian. And yes, exactly. <laughs> they had a, the best of both ways, yes, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's a, a, an issue that's uh, it's worthy well, of I think, discussion. I think that's, that's a good is, I- issue. In, in classical music, various uh, periods have various emphases. So emotion, self-expression, and uh, to press out and educo to to to, to draw out are are uh, very central to romantic to the romantic idea. In 20th century and, and contemporary music, uh, music as primarily a focus for expressing emotions is not necessarily there. It's, uh, it can have other ideas. Uh, the influence of science and the influence of, of very high, highly complex music, where the idea is sometimes more important than actual and. Uh, uh, a direct emotional expression, but I would still say that emotion—the idea of expression and communication of emotion—is is central to, to at least the, the general repertoire that we do in, in classical music. And I agree with you; it is a direct appeal. Uh, it's something that that can actually draw something out of an individual and really touch them, uh, and for a long period, for a very long time. And particularly for young young students, for, for, for kids. It's so important, I think, to be exposed from an early age to music that really does touch them and involves them right away. And it's not a snobbish sort of thing, and it's something that is so that has such a direct impact on them that it is amazing. Um, from my own experience, when... Um, I mean, my, uh, my, my nephew likes to listen to Eminem and all sorts of other things where I don't even want to get near the lyrics. I mean, they're, they're radioactive. Um, when he was a little kid, though, and I was babysitting him occasionally, we'd listen to classical music together. Um, and it was wonderful, uh, listen, letting him listen to the Polovetsian dances and explaining what was happening on the stage. And he'd love it. He would actually, actually sit down and, and listen quietly for close to 15 minutes. This is an active kid with ADD at times. Uh, and also the uh, Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream. I'd explain where the donkey was, and they'd always listen for the ee-aw, ee-aw, and, and all sorts of other things. And they loved it. Uh, it it's, it's something that's just... It's natural, and what I find in attitudes nowadays is to, to make it unnatural, to, to talk about it as if it's something that, that um, either you have to have some great education to understand it, or it's, not, it's really sort of old music that really doesn't have much to say to you nowadays. And yet, in moments that I've seen where there have been very serious events, it always seems to be classical music that, that can express it in, in the most profound way. Um, the Beethoven's Ninth that was used uh, around the world for one of the Olympics and, and this sort of thing. I'm not saying that it's privileged music. Uh, I'm, uh, as I said, I really love the Beatles, and I think they have a lot to say as well, and I consider them as a very fine... Th- their music is very fine, uh, and there's some rock music that's very fine. fine. But there's a commercialization of, of music as well that, that sort of homogenizes it and tries to, to sell as much as possible. Um, and I would like to see in our schools, our public school system above all, to teach music and classical music, but all good music, as something that's natural and, uh, and allow the kids to actually be exposed to it and to love it uh, as they could. Uh, I think it would be a great comfort and a great addition to their lives. And I think it, it just naturally has that. It just has to be heard, and it will work its magic. I'm Brian Hiscox. Hi. Hi, Brian. Um, now, you mentioned 
I think, <laughs> that in Beethoven's music or in his time, music was more than entertainment. It had moral and spiritual values. Mm-hmm. Um, but didn't religious music, like before his time, quite a bit before his time, were wasn't it mostly religious, and didn't it have a moral value as well? Oh, it would have a it would be uh, it would have a moral value as well if you're dealing with say Gregorian chant of the I mean it actually is basically speaking the word of God that that would be that would be it. But I'm talking about uh, in this case I was focusing on secular music and the direct the uh, direct um, uh, uh, comparison is with the previous generations of secular music or music for the court, for instance, where if you had a dinner, uh, Mr. Haydn would actually compose uh, some dinner music and you would sit and talk while that was played uh, and uh, you would have a garden party and you would have a serenade and you would have ravishing music, but it was background music. It's sort of like what's happened to... To, uh, to even uh, some of the more radical rock music. I mean, I remember when the Beatles first came out, my, my piano teacher said, don't listen to the Beatles, it's very bad for you. And my father said, that's not music, that's noise. And now it's supermarket music, you know? So yeah. That's, yeah, was, it, it thinking, always gets co-opted like this. I was just thinking of Bach or something. Well, like someone like Bach, I mean, here's a, someone who's, uh, who's writing in both, in both fields. So he's writing for regular services, uh, in, in the church when he's a cantor, and he's writing for, uh, for chapel music with the Duke of Saxe-Weimar, for instance, or concertos. But again, he's writing, the, the, the work is for his Duke, and it's for a, a court ceremony where you might in, enforce court etiquette as well, um, which is different from, you're, you're right, from the, the religious music where something like the, the B minor mass would be for religious contemplation on Good Friday. Uh, or, or the uh, the uh, Matthew or St. John Passion, the same for Good Friday worship, basically. Okay. Yeah. One more thing about you mentioned organic unity and mm-hmm. something. Uh, well, this really this is an idea that started to grow in the uh, pardon the the pun there with the, it grew up in the uh, uh, in the Romantic era. It's related to theories that include uh, Goethe's ideas uh, as well of, of, of growth and that in uh, in art. It's it's sort of a, a model that is applied to music and also to poetry and to literature. The idea that a work of art begins with a, a seed of an idea that then grows and informs all parts of the work. And this is Beethoven's music becomes is used as the model for that. Because he starts with an idea that seems so simple, and yet it gathers meaning as it grows through the work, and it tends to become... Every, it, it is part of everything that, el, uh, that occurs el, uh, otherwise in the music. You can see the derivation, the motivic derivation. So you have, you have a whole industry of, of analysts and theorists who can actually trace it to, you know, trace idea X to the opening oh, okay. seed of the idea. Oh, okay. And this is, I think it's a, a useful model. It's a model that took over the model of rhetoric before. Like, uh, like, Composers going back even to say Heinrich Schutz in the uh, in the early Baroque period, they based how they built music upon the ideas of rhetoric of how you you talked to an audience and you you had various figures of speech that would move an audience to do something. And there even one of the first musical treatises is uh, is based on uh, Schutz's music and it's an anal- analysis of it according to the figures of rhetoric. And even Bach tended to, to think in those terms when he was composing of how you would, you would say something and then this would then follow upon this, like you would organize a very good speech. But the model changes with Romanticism to the idea of a plant that grows organically.
Thanks very much for coming, Brian. It's great to have you here. My question relates to hearing. hearing. My hearing is not nearly as good as it used to be, and there's probably a few of us in this room that have the same problem. I, 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 find, <laughs> I, find, I find myself uh, being able to enjoy music much more if I have the visual effects of it as well. Is that something that goes with the failing, well, failing hearing? I think that's also a part of actually being uh, in a concert hall setting, for instance, that makes it different from, say, listening to a CD on your own. Um, uh, when you're there in a, a group and you can actually see the, uh, the uh, performers performing and you're actually part of the excitement of the audience at that time, that's a, 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 a power, very powerful feeling. And it's something that uh, I think is part and parcel of going to concerts and was why concerts were very, very popular in, in Vienna. Of course, there, we didn't, they, they had no way of listening to music any other way except, and this is another thing that we've lost to a certain extent, uh, you would actually buy the music arranged for piano duet uh, and you would play it in your homes. Uh, for instance, uh, Mussorgsky learned... Uh, piano by playing with uh, Balakirev, planning, playing the, the, the Schumann symphonies together with Balakirev, and he got to know them inside out when he was playing them. And that was the, way, that was the equivalent of having a stereo. But seeing, them, seeing someone perform, being there when it's being created, and feeling the emotion that's being projected uh, is a very powerful experience. And it's something that I'm hoping people would actually come and see, and that's why I would love to have the Performing Arts Centre. When, when I perform music, and the only reason I would do it, because it's a terrible pain, uh, and, and uh, you, if you have stage fright as I have, it's, it's, it's absolutely frightening to go out there and to perform unless you really believe in the music you're performing. And the thing that, for me, makes me do it again, despite the fear of falling flat on my face, is this feeling of when you're performing it and you're involved in it and the music means so much to you, you're projecting an emotion, and you can feel that being picked up by people. You can feel that connection with people. And it's an inspiration. It's a wonderful feeling. And after a while, it's almost like you're not performing, like a higher power is actually doing this. And this is the spiritual side of music that I think is so important. It automatically, as Beethoven shows in the Ninth Symphony, makes you all brothers together who have suffered similar things. And it's this type of communication of the most depressing uh, feelings and the most uplifting feelings that, like a catharsis, can, can bring people together. And, and th for me, that's the most important thing in, in, in performing music, above all. Music that really touches so deeply and yet and, and shows a common, common feelings and common experience. I'm Tad. Uh, Brian, when you were in Montreal, I think we were also living in Montreal, mm -hmm. there was an incident at the subway station, metro station, which was uh, infamous for uh, rowdy teenagers gathering day and night. Uh -huh. And people used to be afraid of getting on the subway or getting off on that station. And some city official had a bright idea and decided to play do you remember it was a classic music or opera 
I don't remember which. I don't remember, but yeah, they use classical music to, classical to, music. to scare them they away. Started, yeah, uh, they, they, the music scared them away. Yeah. And from that time on, no teenager congregate in that station. <laughs> and when I heard that, I felt terribly offended. <laughs> who was the bright guy who thought up such an insult <laughs> to the music? Was it communist? <laughs> Well, I can say that one of the fantasies of my brother and I was uh, in the metro with all the Muzak was to sneak into the, the head uh, broadcasting station and put on Bruckner's Ninth and see who noticed. <laughs> but anyways. Well, anyway, could you comment on that? Well, I don't know how to comment. <laughs> I think it's a bad use of classical music, that's for sure. And I think it makes some assumptions that I don't agree with. But I think Ian has... I was, I was briefly teaching last year as a visitor in Olympia, Washington, and they had the same thing downtown at the, bus, the main bus terminal. So there was a park and uh, speakers, and they played classical music all day. And it was lovely to sit there. And there were no you know, um, undesirable elements around there. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, maybe this is why they put this music on, but it was lovely for those yeah. who like the music, and it was, I well, guess, good for those who don't. We just <laughs> talked about the moral, uh, the moral improvement of man. Now we have the moral improvement of nature by being washed clean of bad man, I guess. <laughs> like the wind here in Lithuania. Yeah, like the wind, right. <laughs> um, gee, what, how do I answer something? How, how do I even say something about this? Um, a lot of... Um, there's a lot of posturing, in, I find, in, 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 uh, in popular music. I hope I'm not misrepresenting it, but things that I see. Like heavy metal, all of the posturing in heavy metal and the rap, and it's sort of like it's meant to be. I, I find this with, with my, my nephew and that. Uh, this is music that's uh, antisocial, and it's tough, and it's hard music, and it's, it's the way they identify as they're tough, you know, they're tough guys, etc. But when you think of it, it's pandering, and not, it's not pandering. It's actually using people. It's using the youth to get to ma sell as many records as possible, and the artists really pump up this sort of stuff, um, so that it's uh, it becomes it's like you say it, it identifies a segment as this is our music, and that other music is nothing that you really want to uh, to associate with, and that's either useless music or it's awful and you have all these hatreds and that which is pretty stupid for music which is music is music it's great music no matter what the style is great music and I hate this sort of it's like in American politics I hate the politics of division and pitting one person against the other but it's one way of selling music too of getting a niche and trying to drill for that oil until you've exhausted the well and then go on something else unless there's a terrible spill and you have to clean up afterwards I guess uh, it's hard to thank Brian for coming. As I, I might have informed you, we don't pay you. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is a public forum and where we ask people to come to tell us their convictions, etc., etc. And we learn a great deal. And uh, for your information, Brian, this institution has been going on for... 37 years. Wow, that's great.
And uh, it was started by, uh, I think, one professor at the education department of U of L. And I think it's a great institution. And I invite you to come in a daytime regular forum, too. Uh, anyhow, thank you, Brian, for coming. And uh, thank you for you to come. And this is a bad timing when everybody's uh, uh, excited about civic election. But uh, we can make use of the knowledge acquired here to decide who to vote. So I encourage you to read all the uh, blurbs of all the candidates and support those people who support art in Lethbridge. And thank you, Brian, and thank you for your coming. <laughs>